0: Hey, uh,
1: before we get going, this is Aaron. I'm one of the hosts of this show. I have a new podcast coming out. It's called Stoner. I talk to creative, interesting people who enjoy marijuana. If you like this show, I think you might like hearing me talk somewhere else about something else. We'll have on artists and musicians, also people who work within the marijuana industry. Uh, If it's not for you, maybe tell your most stonery friend. At the end of this episode, we'll have a little teaser for it so you can hear a little bit about what it's all about. If you listen, thank you. Here's the show. Hey, welcome to the long form podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer, here with Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. What's up you guys? Hey Aaron, I understand that you did an interview for the show. I did. It's with uh, Rishi Rishikesh Hirway, uh, who is behind Song Exploder, uh, which is a podcast I greatly enjoy. It's a, it's a music podcast and he breaks, it's like one, each episode is one song, he breaks it down. It's with the musician. It's the musician breaking down their own song, explaining how they made it. Um, in terms of why I was interested in having him on this show he's pretty clear to say he does not consider what he does, music journalism or music criticism, but I think it has some of the same aims as those things, and it's an interesting way to tell the story behind music in a way that feels really direct and uh, right from the person who made it. I feel like it's telling about Song Exploder that you, Aaron Lamber,
2: who like knows everything about music, and me, Max Linsky, who has zero taste and knows nothing, both really enjoy Song Exploder. Song
1: Exploder is really interesting. Um, to me, because you very rarely get to hear multi-track breakdown. Like you could listen to music your whole life and never hear isolated tracks. There was only one. There's one other show. There's a show called um, BBC Classic Albums that shows like artists in the studio with their like original tapes, and you can hear individual tracks. But it's a in the same way. I hope that this show maybe gives people an idea of how um, pieces of nonfiction magazine articles are constructed you often don't get a peek into that world. You see the edited finished product and you don't understand what the ingredients are. So it's a real privilege. Um, he's done a hundred episodes to be able to hear what are the, just the drums sound like uh, on this song? What What is, you know, how is this sample chopped in this exact portion of the song? You also
2: you can't, they're, they're not that long, but you can't listen to just one. That's what happened to me. I started listening to artists that I like. Yeah. And then suddenly I'm listening to artists I never heard of. And then picking up their music from there.
1: I don't know if you guys have favorites, but my favorite is the BoJack one. The Bo- the BoJack Horseman theme song is really excellent. The um, I also highly recommend the uh, Composer of Moonlights episode. is really interesting. Um, but as a whole, I think as we sort of do this show and um, cross our first decade here, uh, <laughs> doing this every week... Um, I'm more and more interested in people who are doing things at the periphery of journalism and and doing journalism in new ways and and figuring out different ways to tell the same stories like um, what is this song that have existed since forever.
2: Aaron, if you wanted to tell some new stories in a new way, how would you do it?
1: Uh, I find a way that is reliable to contact people is email. And the only reliable way to send email is with MailChimp. They are our sponsor. Thank you, MailChimp. 14 million people using MailChimp. All three of us are in that group of 14. I actually have two MailChimp accounts now.
2: (laughs) Now here's Aaron with Rishikesh Hirway.
1: Welcome Rishikesh Hirway. Thanks so much. Thanks, Aaron. Um... Give people the uh, very, very brief elevator when you meet a person at a bar. What is Song Exploder?
2: Um, Sometimes I have to explain what a podcast is first, but then uh, I had my first
1: interview that started with what what is a podcast a couple of weeks ago. (laughs) (laughs) That's always great. That's great.
2: Um, So Song Exploder is a podcast where musicians take apart their songs and piece by piece tell the story of how they were made. And that's how I start every episode, just in case somebody's coming to it for the very first time and they've uh, never heard of it. That's what they hear on the show.
1: You work in the same terrain as uh, a music writer or a music critic, but I would never describe you as either of those things. Literally, how do you relate what you're doing to these more uh, established canonical forms of music journalism media
2: yeah I don't know how it fits or if it fits in there at all the thing that I've I feel like I've related it to most is well there's there's two things one is sort of like a remix and the other is like more like a design project Mm. and I think that those two are related they're certainly related at least in my own mind in the way that I go about both of those things because um I think that for journalists and having no background in journalism and having never been like in a newsroom or had to really deal with some of these questions, I feel like there are different rules for journalism, like a, a more stringent adherence to like documenting what somebody's saying and and how they're saying it, where um, you might cut down for for content, you know, you might skip a question or something like that, or you might even cut people saying um or uh to clean up the flow of a conversation, but generally there's this sense of you're presenting a recording of what the person said. And I'm technically not doing that. I'm like presenting what I think people mean and, and trying to present what they mean in the best sort of like most articulate, most like beautiful way I can possibly present it. I think what, and I feel like I end up breaking what would probably be rules for a regular journalist. To, Does
1: that have to do with sort of coaching people? Like I'm curious how people tell their stories so well, H- how much do you have to intervene to guide those stories into such a like articulate and sort of
2: resonant uh whole? There's some stuff that's definitely happening on the interview side. Um, but I would say most of it is happening on the editing side. Interesting. Um, and so, you know, just like the way making a song has like, sometimes the actual path is meandering, but even just talking about uh, how a song is made, you know, you forget stuff and you you come back to it. And, you know, they talk about the drums. And then later I ask them about a bass thing and they're like, oh, actually, no, this other thing came first, you know? And so it gets told all out of sequence. Um, And then it's up to me to kind of like condense those things and put it it in order. Um, And so this is where it starts to feel like, a design project too. Like it's a little bit of a puzzle of putting the things together in the most logical way and, and easy to digest way. And I'm thinking a little bit more about who's hearing it than I am about who's saying it, or, or like, I have more fidelity, I think, to the person who's hearing it than the person who's saying it. Um, and, and I'm, so I'm taking some liberties, or maybe I'm taking actually kind of like a lot of liberties with their words and cutting things up and, you know, like Frankensteining sentences together like oh, there's a lot of stuff on song exploder where an idea starts from one part of the interview. The middle is from another part of the interview and the end of the sentence is from another part of the interview. But I know because I was there for the whole thing, I know what they meant. Yes. Um. And, well,
1: uh, no, I mean, it's, it's interesting that you would, you would think of that as taking a greater Liberty than to me, like say a musician's profile in which someone goes and hangs out with someone for two hours and then like, clips like two sentences of quotes is like (laughs) whoa you've like excluded almost everything that happened in a way like when I hear a song exploder I don't necessarily assume it's linear but I assume that it's sort of true to the uh, heart and soul of how they represented their song
2: I mean I hope so but that's the thing I guess you know you never really (laughs) you don't know (laughs) Um, and I am cutting out I am kind of doing that in where I'm spending like an hour to an hour and a half with them and then just putting out 10 minutes of them talking from that. But um, but I am trying to be as empathetic as possible. And, um, you know, one thing that I definitely am also doing that's different from maybe how a journalist might approach it is I'm trying to make them look good as much as possible. Right. There's absolutely zero interest in, in trying to like... Reveal something I'd never ever ever want an artist to hear an episode that I've made and have them feel bad about how it turned out or embarrassed or anything like that.
1: How long has the show existed now?
2: Um, just over three years. Three years. OK, so it
1: feels part of a, a wave both in the Internet and um, with music itself, at least in, in my experience as a listener. I remember going on things like uh, what is now known as Genius for the first uh-huh. time, or a site like Who Sampled, that are these sort yeah. of rich troves of information that previously just didn't exist. Like there was never, there previously was not a, you know, a, a comprehensive database of sample u- usage. Or something I think of in, in Song Exploders, I, I remember prior to your show. Only three or four times had I heard um, someone do a multi-track isolated breakdown of a song, which is like a hugely informative process. If you've never had the experience of like listening to, say, studio tapes and breaking them down, it's very counterintuitive what a lot of stuff sounds like. I kind of remember there was like a um, BBC Classic Album series where they sometimes right. sit at the desk and do it, but that was like the only time I'd have heard it. Now you're at episode 100. It feels like there's something of a movement that um, takes a lot of its uh, influence from, from information and from sort of charting uncharted territory in a documentarian archivist kind of way rather than a critic's role. Was there stuff that you were thinking about when you started out with the show wanting to emulate or build upon?
2: I think the primary thing was just the sounds of the stems of the isolated elements themselves, whether I would be making my own music or listening to somebody else's music, um, in their studio or something that they're working on whenever I would get to hear, you know, the soloed track of just like, Oh, this is what just the guitars sound like. or This is what all the vocal harmonies. If you just listen to those, this is what it sounds like. That's like some of my favorite, most satisfying moments of making music. And, and experiencing music as a musician um, but there was something kind of private and insider about it and and so there was a selfish part where you know Sifian Stevens did this thing on um, on one of his records where there's this violin section in one of the songs and he did something that I kind of that I was like wow that's a, I would totally love to do that I thought it was really ballsy and awesome that he, the song plays and then and then the next track the name of the track is something like, let's hear those strings again. And it's just the string part from the song. (laughs) It's like a minute long of just, just the strings of the track that you just heard. And it's a track on the CD. And that kind of played into an instinct that I've had a lot where I'm like, oh man, I worked so hard on this string arrangement or this horn arrangement or whatever. And, uh, and I'm listening to it here and nobody else gets to hear it. Um, Wouldn't it be cool if there were a way to let other people hear it? I have
1: a something of like a stoner's tendency to find like almost every isolated track kind of beautiful. Is it hard for you to be selective and say like, yeah, this isolated track, this is the interesting one to listen to? Like, how do you how do you zero in on when you take a song and start taking it apart? What are going to be the important parts to tell the story?
2: Well, that's the nice thing about combining with the interview, you know. there've been times when a band will take like a song and they'll just upload the stems on SoundCloud and you can just listen to it, you know, the three minute song track by track and that's cool and kind of neat, but combining it with the story about the song gives it some framework. And so sometimes I will leave out a stem because there's no good story around uh, about it, you know, um, or I might end up using it if it's really beautiful and there's n- not a good story about it or there's there's nothing particularly interesting that's said of it. I can still use it as like score. so there's this other textural way that I can pull it into the episode, but usually, I pick what's gonna be in there, sort of balancing both how beautiful the stem is and then how great the story is that goes along with it
1: how do you how do you deal with the issue of? I was actually even worried when we started this show. Uh, this show I felt like very inspired by Mark Marin's show. Um, and Same. I always thought with Marin, I was like, Well, those are all comedians. They're incredibly good talkers. Like they're people who talk professionally. What I've discovered with this show with Longform is that people who write for a living and have to like articulate ideas and also often do radio and they're also pretty good at talking. It's a pretty self selecting pool of people who can talk. With musicians, I don't always associate like people who are great at writing music with being great about talking about writing music. Like, how do you deal with people who who what they do happens at some subconscious level and they're not necessarily used to articulating it in an interview kind of capacity?
2: Yeah, no, I, I feel like you're being very diplomatic about the idea that musicians <laughs> can be really boring when they when they talk. But uh, as a musician, I feel yeah. I have no qualms saying that, and it's also part of the reason why I get nervous about um, being on this show. Yeah, because you do have such articulate speakers, and you know, people who can write and and connect their thoughts so eloquently. These are all things that I don't do well, and and would hate when I was um, the few times you know when I would have to do press for my own band. It always kind of pained me and and stressed me out. Yeah, and still stresses me out now. Um, but this is where song exploder was kind of designed around these limitations, but the idea that I don't want to have to talk. And also that potentially 60 to 80% of what a musician says during an interview might be boring to all, but the most diehard of fans. So that's why the episodes are so short, but the interviews are so long. You know, if I can talk to somebody for 80 or 90 minutes, then I'm sure that they can say, uh, five or six really interesting things, or at least four or five pretty interesting things, and two or three incredibly profound things about their own work.
1: Hey, I'm going to pause things here for a quick word from our sponsor, Meundis. If you're like me, you probably don't think very much about your underwear. You just buy them when you're buying some clothes and then keep them forever. That is a terrible way to live. Not only do you have some crappy old rundown underwear, but you never really know when to replace them. There's a better way. undies. They are seriously soft, feel-good undies delivered right to your door. Designed in L.A., made from sustainably sourced, micro-modal fabric that's three times softer than cotton... The best part, in my opinion, is you can save time and you can save money each month by opting for a monthly subscription. But even if you're not ready for that, that's okay. You can still save. You can get 20% off your first pair when you go to MeUndies.com slash longform. So go ahead, revamp your underwear drawer. You've earned it. Once again, MeUndies.com slash longform for 20% off your first pair, and you'll be supporting the show. Thank you, MeUndies. Here I am back with Rishi Kesh hereway. I accept what you say about a distinction between what you're doing and journalism or criticism. But if you're doing 80 or 90 minutes worth of interview and you're putting out a product that has, what, about 20 minutes of interview in it?
2: Mm, more last, like 8 to 12.
1: 8 to 12 minutes of interview. Uh, what yeah, you, average. What you're doing is on some level writing. Um, you're taking the raw material of a bunch of interview bits and, and writing what I think often comes across like a very well-written essay out of them. I'm curious mm. how you develop that skill and, and, and how it's evolved over 100 episodes, um, that sense of the essay within the episode.
2: That's interesting. I never have thought about it as writing. Actually, one time I remember Roman Mars used the phrase writing with other people's words when he was talking about how he builds a 99% Invisible episode um, where he condenses the information from the interview and then, you know, kind of writes around stuff. And I was kind of jealous of that. And again, I don't feel totally comfortable doing that, like coming in and doing like the explainer around their words. So I never really thought of it as writing it definitely felt like I was just editing. Um, This is maybe where it felt more like a remix to me because I felt like I was given other people's work, uh, other people's ideas and thoughts and music, and then um, my job is just to try and create something that has, like with any song, it has a place where it starts and there's some kind of emotional content to it. And you try and build an arc into it and you try and have it end with some level of, uh, satisfaction and there are little stakes and things that you build into it to try and do that. So I I think, I guess maybe, um, I don't know if this is entirely true, but probably the closest thing I could give to an answer is is maybe it comes from music. Interesting.
1: Well, I assume a lot of these people you can't have like unlimited time with. What like do right. you ask for like at least a certain amount of time to be able to pull off an episode?
2: I ask for at least an hour. I don't always get it. Uh, wow. With Bono. With Bono, they were like, you have 15 minutes.
1: <laughs> and and does that like is that a like potentially like, ah oh, shit, I just don't even want to do it then. Or are you just like, no, we'll figure out how to do it with 15 minutes.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, so. There, at least, it it wasn't the only interview. They said I had 30 minutes with The Edge and 15 minutes with Bono. Um, so that was a little bit risky, but I did The the Edge interview first, and we hit the 30-minute mark, and I was trying to wrap up, you know, being like, I was like, hey, thank you so much for talking to me, and uh, but then he kind of blew past me and, like, kept going. And, and we weren't in, in the same place. They were in Canada on tour, and I was here in L.A. And so I was texting the publicist at the same time, and I was like, Hey, I'm sorry. I tried to tried to end it. I know you, you know, he has to go. And she wrote back and she was like, no, no, no. That means that he's into it. Like it's totally cool. And I I think like partly that time limit is imposed for their clients safety or or security. Um, So we ended up talking for like 45 minutes and he was great. And so I felt like I was on pretty solid ground by the time I, I got to the interview later that day with Bono. You know, I had pretty solid footing if it if I had to do them in the other order, it would have been a totally different story. but but there, I was just like, all right, I've got the meat of the story, and I just need a couple of good um reactions to things that the edge said, or you know, just a couple of new insights about the parts that were uniquely Bonos, like the lyrics of the of the song were really largely based on his own um biography.
1: Do you have an idea of what kind of music, what kind of a person is gonna make? a great episode now. Like it does, do you have to like the song for it to work for you?
2: I don't, I I think it would be a limitation if I did, because you know, that would be too arrogant. I think if if I tried to limit the show to music that I liked, because there's too much, there's too much music out there. That's really loved and um, that people are really interested in that falls outside of my own personal tastes for me to, to limit it that way so um, of course I'm interested in artists that are really successful and famous and who have a, a big following just for the sake of the show having people who are, you know tuning in and listening to it um, and then I'm also trying to find people specifically who sound different from you know whoever it was that was on the last episode if I can have a punk band and an R&B artist and a rapper and a metal band, you know, like within the course of two months, then I can feel like, all right, this is good. I'm proving um, some kind of underlying thesis of Song Exploder, which is that regardless of what you think of the song, there's something to be said and something to be gained from understanding how this piece of work was made. There's like a sub-narrative of... um, of creativity and inspiration and how, and just like the idea of work and that like creativity and art, there's like this work component to it. And there are all these little ideas that end up getting knitted together. You yourself um,
1: have been in bands. Um, your main project is 1am radio.
2: That's been the thing that I, I started that when I was in college and um, has been like kind of a through line for music for, for, most of my adult life these days I'm not really working on it so much just because I've I don't know for for a bunch of different reasons and so the the project that I've been focused on most musically is um, this new band called Moors. okay
1: when you first thought of doing this show I'm also curious most of the podcast world and most of the media at least outside of the like bigger more funded This American Life kind of operations is kind of casual, a little bit sloppy, kind of like turn on the mics and let it happen. Maybe we edit it. Maybe it just goes straight on the Internet. And your show is intensely meticulous. Like I can't even count how many cuts there must be per minute. (laughs) I never hear like uh, an off note at all in it. What inspired you to approach the show that way? Is that just like how you are? And how did you feel about investing so much time and so much energy into really a pretty labor intensive show when I assume the audience wasn't huge? Episode one.
2: Yeah, well, the first part feels a little bit like I didn't have a choice. Um, I think that's just how I am about everything, um, for better, for worse, and oftentimes for worse. Like, especially, (laughs) I think, um, as somebody who's primarily been involved in, like, creative things, meticulousness is definitely not always a strength. And this just happens to be a place where I think it works, you know, where I was able to take that annoying Part of me, you know, it's the same like making a record for me is incredibly painful and takes so long You know, like between the f- my first and second record it took me two years And then between the next one it was three years and then between the next one. It was four years because like I just can't um, Finish things, you know and, and there's a nice thing about song splitter where there are these external deadlines that I've, I've set up where I'm like Okay, I'm putting out these episodes on this on these days and so I kind of have to stop but otherwise if I didn't have those, I, I I definitely would not have put out as many episodes so far. And and,
1: I mean, the bar uh, you've set for yourself is pretty extreme. Uh, you're averaging what about three episodes a month? Yeah, like there's um, people who have like entire offices um, of people to produce like that much material. How did you decide?
2: Hey, I'm just going to do three episodes a month. Um, originally, it was two episodes a month. Because I was doing a lot more music around that time. In the first year, I was touring a bunch and I was working on a film score. And so I was like, I think I can maintain a two, two episode a month schedule. But I started to realize that people who put out shows more frequently, they just kind of were in the public consciousness more. I felt like, or, or you know, maybe this is, this is a mistake. I might be mistaking the public consciousness for Twitter. <laughs> Um, but (laughs) you're not the first person who's made that mistake, (laughs) but it felt like, uh, you know, the more you put out, then there's the, that's another chance for, to be the subject of a conversation between people and trying to get people to tune in and discover this, this felt very much like, uh, related to what I've gone through with music where, You know, you're always trying to figure out how to stay relevant, not have people forget about your band between records, between tours,
1: between songs. I assume you didn't start this thinking like this is going to be my full time living. I'm going to like just make this podcast. But it seems like it's evolved into something that is a pretty like deep and rich enterprise for you. You're doing stuff with Google play music. You do live shows. I mean, you've, you've built a lot of infrastructure out of the podcast.
2: Yeah, no, I I definitely didn't think that it was going to be full time. And part of the reason why it switched was because music stuff just kind of slowed down. And then I was like, "Mm, I could put out a third episode. Like I had the time at that, at that moment. And so I did that for the next couple months and I felt like, there was some proof to that idea that like, okay, if I put out more stuff, I, I knew I couldn't make, make it be a weekly show. Um, but I started to understand things about the power of a weekly show that when, when you put out something and people can expect it, you know, the, the, the crazy thing about the three episodes a month schedule is nobody has any idea when song exploder comes out. Like right, yeah. <laughs> people don't even know how to describe the schedule. You know, they're like, <laughs> they're like, Oh, this week's episode. I'm like, yeah, but there's no episode next week, you know? Uh, it's it's alternating Mondays and Thursdays, which is essentially nothing. That means nothing to anybody. <laughs> um, but the idea, but I at least got the lesson from people who are making weekly shows of like how awesome it is for their audience to be able to feel like, Hey, this is a part of my, my life. I turn on, you know, just like the way somebody would consume a TV show and being able to look forward to something coming out. And then I just, and then I just never stopped doing three episodes a month. And now you're at 100. Yeah. I wish sometimes that I I could go back to two episodes a month because it feels a little bit overwhelming when music stuff comes up, and I'm trying to do that too. And then now I do have a weekly show uh, that I'm doing, the West Wing Weekly. So there are months where it feels like trying to put out music and seven episodes in four weeks of two different shows is just like too much. And then when we were working on the Google podcast, I think like in the month of January... I I realized I'd made 10 episodes of three different shows and I was just not sleeping.
1: I mean, when you're working that much, are you just basically every single hour of every day as mapped out? Like, okay, I do this show this day. I do that. Like that, that just seems like a feat of endurance to me.
2: Yeah. I mean, the other part of it that makes it hard is I'm really bad with time management and, uh, (laughs) and, and I feel like not very disciplined. So, I don't know how to structure this stuff. So uh, at that and then combined with also not being able to let go and like finish a thing it makes it really hard. I, I was pulling all nighters uh, for several nights in a row.
1: I think a lot of people uh, fantasize a lot of people who listen to the show fantasize about like, I'll start some creative project. It'll take off it'll go all have all sorts of different tentacles and I'll be able to do it as my job. And it, you know, it can, it can sound like a a dream come true, which it is. And I think that, um, you've put in enough work that no one could say you got lucky. Um, but I wonder how it feels to have achieved that level of success with what you're doing and where you go from there. And yeah, like, well, what's the
2: emotional experience been like? It's a little bit bittersweet, honestly. Um, first i love the idea that somebody would listen to an episode and then the feeling that they would have afterwards is now i want to make something that's like the best possible reaction like whether it's music or not just the idea that like i want to make something because that is the thing that i love most getting that feeling from stuff like going to a show or hearing a record or watching a movie or reading a book or whatever it is or just whatever experience and being able to have that and then feel like I can make something. I I know how to make something or I want to make something that is really important to me. And so the idea that an episode of song exploder might make somebody feel that way, like that's the most gratifying uh, idea I I think ever separately. My own experience of like making it is a little bit bittersweet because I know there, there are people out there who probably like their medium is radio or podcasting, you know, like that's the thing that they want to do. That's the thing that they have been working towards. And for me, it's been music my whole life. And when I'm making the podcast, I'm not making music. Like I'm, I'm spending so many hours every week, week after week, not making music. And it's a little bit weird because I'm, I'm still working with music. I'm talking about, or not talking about, but I'm working around other people's music. So I think there's something, I don't know, a little bit sad to me about that because um, I guess I had enough success with a, as a musician that I was able to do it full-time for a few years. I, I certainly wasn't famous and I wasn't rich, but I felt like I was, I was doing my work, you know, and I was, I was making my living doing the thing that I wanted to do. Um, now I do this other thing, and I'm, I'm still making music, but um, And part of even starting Song splitter was like kind of an economic decision because that place where I was, that kind of like lower middle class of working musicians, it's getting harder and harder to like live like that. Either you've got to be a star or it has to be a hobby. And so the fact is I didn't become a star. I'm not a star when it comes to music. And I had to kind of think of it a little bit more like a hobby. Making Song splitter, means I have to bring all of those experiences and connections and things that I got from making music for 15 years, you know, the meticulous way that I would make music, all those things are like being brought to bear to make this show. And so in some ways it's really nice. The culmination of a lot of things, but I don't feel only happy about it. You know, you brought up Mark Maron. Here's another, an he's, an he's another he unhappy back, um, person. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he, I, I love that show because um, and I wanted to make Song Exploder kind of modeled after his show in some ways, even though the form of it is so different, there was this intrinsic thing of like feeling like you're being you're skipping the introductory layers and you're going into something more like intermediate or advanced when you're listening to him and another comedian talk. They have the vernacular of of people who have been in the trenches in a particular way that um, and, and me talking to a comedian, I'd never get to have that kind of connection. And so I get to hear things. You get to the meat of it and the truth of it in a way that you wouldn't if it weren't if they didn't have this shared um, uh, vocabulary. Craft. Yeah. And so that was something that was really inspiring. But I also always felt. And, you know and and it's much more clearly on display in his show because he's such a part of it and and so often the conversation becomes about his own feelings and and his own career you know my, my first episode I heard with him was the one with Louie and I was kind of presented with with this idea of like oh Mark Maron has this really successful podcast um, and the podcast is more successful than his career as a stand-up comic his yeah. career as a stand-up comic is what fueled the podcast and and without it it wouldn't be so successful but um, here he is talking to people who you know in many cases have much bigger careers than than he does and you can hear that he's sad about it and even like bitter about it sometimes or resentful and then sometimes that stuff comes out and it's really it makes for fascinating listening and but uh, you know sometimes I think about how I'm like that too. It's not an awesome thought
1: no I think a lot of people would would empathize with that It's yeah. it's interesting that whatever our reality is. We sort of draw its distance from a sense of fantasy, even when the reality has got a lot of overlap with that sort of original view. It must be partially that Song Exploder is such a success that it feels like a starkly, uh,
2: the contrast is realized. Hmm. Yeah. Then there's the other part of it too, where I, you know, where I'm like, oh, the podcast is more successful than. my records were, but then there's the same instinct that makes me feel bad about the records. I feel bad about the podcast where I, I, I'm glad I've gotten to a hundred episodes, but I'm always thinking of like, why isn't this show bigger? Like why, what am I doing wrong? Why can't I get a bigger audience for it? And part of it, and this is part of where like my experience dealing with these kinds of thoughts about music have, have kind of come through too a little bit where, you know, not everything is made for a mass, audience Um, there are things where even at its best version the best executed version of it it's something that's going to only appeal to like a certain number of people and and maybe like a highly meticulously produced show about a musician taking apart a song it's not going to have the same kind of appeal as a suspenseful serialized true crime drama
1: well The whole scale of all of this stuff is just mind boggling now compared to, you know, when you look at even a lot of like great records, how you know little they sold at at the original time or even the scale of like uh, like a print magazine like The New Yorker, which is like had this massive cultural influence for decades and decades and decades and has under a million subscribers. Right. You know, there's a weird inflationary sense of people out there that doesn't necessarily match like. How art has been pacing itself over the last hundred years or so.
2: Yeah this is something that I, I think about all the time which is like trying to figure out how to get back to viewing music and or, and podcasts whatever like any kind of like creative output the way that I did when it wasn't my job that when I was in college and just loved you know whatever band or, or whatever film I wasn't thinking at all about like oh, well, what were the box office receipts like? Or, you know, what what are the sound scan numbers? Yeah. It I, I flopped. For, yeah. <laughs> I worked for a little while at a record label, the record label that the One Name Radio was, was signed to. I was the creative director there. And... And it was a really great experience for me in a lot of ways. But I also think that in some ways it was like profoundly damaging to my like self-esteem as a creative person because I was actively engaged with the business. And more importantly, I saw how people outside of the people who were making the music kind of dealt with the reality of that. You know, like how much the direct correlation between like, oh, these are your sound scan numbers. These are the kinds of attention and resources you're going to get from the label because of that attention. These are the kind of narrative that gets pitched if something gets pitched at all out into the world. And then this is how people out in the world like end up receiving it. It was this uh, crazy thing that made me feel like having a hit or having commercial success was so, so important. Whereas when I was, you know, 19, like who cared how many copies, the seven inch that I bought, like I saw a band in a basement and I loved them so much. And I bought a seven inch and I listened to it every day for like three months. And I thought it was the greatest thing and and super profound. And that was what was important to me. And when I was making stuff, I would be like, I want to have that feeling. I want to have that kind of connection with somebody. I want to make something that's important to one person as this one record was important to me. I haven't listened
1: to every episode, but I can't really think of a song exploder episode where someone's explanation of the song has to do with the music business or has to do with mm-hmm. labels or money or uh, advancing the career or anything like that. Is that stuff get edited out or does it you just naturally radiate? That's not what I'm interested in.
2: Uh, no, those stories do sometimes come in and I actually really love them. There's one that in particularly that I really love, which is um, the Peter Bjorn and John uh, episode yeah. uh, about young folks that song is such a massive hit and that band became so huge I feel I felt like to me like overnight based on that one one song um I was a big fan kind of immediately and one of the things I loved about it was the drum sound in that in that record um but then it turned out that the reason why the drums sounded the way they did is because on the record they'd made before they had had this feeling of like we're going to take over the world And they spent a lot of money on the record thinking that they were going to be like a huge hit then. And then that record didn't end up doing that for them. They didn't have that kind of commercial success. And it was like super disappointing for them. And they thought that that might be it. They almost broke up as a result of it, as a result of like the lack of, you know, commercial success. They decided to make one more record, but uh, in reaction to it, they made it super cheap just be just like well you know we're not going to try that again we're not going to invest all the, this money into something in case it doesn't work out and so they recorded it in their like practice space and, and that had bad acoustics in there and so they couldn't record the drums with cymbals because the cymbals would sound terrible so they had to do this other kind of miking and and ended up making this drum sound that to me as a producer is like one of the my favorite drum sounds that's ever been in a, in a record and that was all because of this reaction that came out of like a purely commercial music industry kind of uh, part of their story. I have a theory
1: about you that it, I don't know if it's true or not, but it's something I think about when I listen to your show in the same way that like in Mark Maron, his meeting with Lauren Michaels just yeah. comes up over and over again. And you could almost like describe Mark Maron's entire life history as like <laughs> being projected through the lens of him meeting Lauren Michaels and, and not getting a job on Saturday Night Live. But, I've noticed that there is a huge, um, a hugely overrepresented number of theme songs
2: on song (laughs) exploder.
1: Do you identify with the writers of theme songs?
2: Well, I came out to LA because I wanted to do film scores. Um, I was doing my band on the East coast and, um, I felt like I could do that from anywhere, but I really wanted to write music for films. And I felt like the only way I could do that, I tried to do it in New York and it didn't end up working out for me. I couldn't make those connections. And it just felt like there wasn't enough of a scene or whatever. I wasn't tapped into it. So I ended up coming out to LA specifically for that reason. So that is like a huge interest in, in for me. But then there's also, I think like it's from a purely strategic business kind of, move. It's a good thing for me to do because you get to tap into sometimes like two different sets of audiences. I did an episode with Bojack Horse, uh, the Bojack Horseman theme um, that was written by Patrick Carney of the Black Keys. And suddenly all these people who love Bojack Horseman, which are millions of people, plus all the people who like the Black Keys, I get to appeal to all of them. You know, like I, I get to spread the net further with that, you know, to, to the extent that I'm just trying to like drive up the numbers for the sake of the business of Song Explode or the sake of the viability of the show, both in terms of like being able to book artists and say, hey, look, this many people listened to the last episode or to say to sponsors, hey, look, people are actually downloading this show. There's like a strategic aspect to it as well. And also like as opposed to a song in a movie, people are watching shows. They might see 10 episodes. They get to hear that same piece of music 10 times. And so they end up having like a real connection with it. And I end up having a connection with it as well. So it it ends up looming kind of large in my, in my brain.
1: My final question. uh, Where
2: do you go from here? Oh, I have no idea. I think I'm trying not (laughs) to think about it too much. This is one of the other advantages of having the schedule established for you. And one of the things that is really paralyzing um, about making music, you know, when when you're like, oh, I'm making a record and there's no deadline and it's just up to me to come in here every day and and figure it out. There's something nice about the relentlessness of like, well, I have to start working on the next episode immediately because it's got to come out in 10 days and I have at least 12 days of work left on it. (laughs) So, so I... <laughs> it kind of prevents me from having a macroscopic view of anything. I just have to keep my head down and get the next episode out. Well, uh, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Aaron. It was awesome talking to you.
1: And that was the long form podcast. Uh, thanks very much to Janelle Pfeiffer who edited this show, and to our intern Courtney Harrell, of course, to my co-hosts Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thank you to our sponsors, MeUndies and Mailchimp. Um, As I said at the beginning of the show, I have a new podcast out. It's called Stoner. It's conversations with interesting, creative people who enjoy marijuana. If you want to hear a little bit more of the show, just keep listening. I'm going to play a little teaser for it here. All right. See you next week. Hey, uh, I'm Aaron Lammer. I have a new show coming out. It's called Stoner. I myself enjoy marijuana and have for many years. So it's been fun buying legal marijuana for the first time and seeing people's attitudes change. And I think that means that a wider swath of people are trying and often really liking it. And I'm curious who they are. And so I'm gonna go seek them out and talk to them about it. Um, who am I? I am a podcaster. I started a literary site called Longform, I write songs with Francis and the Lights, we've done work with Drake and Kanye West and Bon Iver, we toured all winter with Chance the Rapper. Anyway, all the places my life takes me, I meet creative, interesting people who enjoy marijuana, and I love talking about it with them. So that's the inspiration for this show, I'll be talking to artists, musicians, people in science and technology, uh, people who work within the marijuana economy, but mostly people who consume it I think we'll start with questions like when was the first time you ever smoked weed and just see where that can take us because a question like that asks a lot of things it asks where you're from Uh, who did you hang out with when you were in high school what did your parents think I've done a few of the conversations already they're funny uh, they're very human so I encourage you to subscribe the iTunes page is up now the first episode will be available shortly I look forward to seeing you then
0: why do you run